Book Two, Chapter Two, Part Four of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. S. Behrman, the clerk, and the man with the door closing apparatus involved themselves in a long argument, gazing intently at the top panel of the door. The man who had come to fix the apparatus was unwilling to guarantee it unless a sign was put on the outside of the door warning incomers that the door was self-closing. The sign would cost fifteen cents extra. "'But you didn't say anything about this when the thing was ordered,' declared S. Behrman. "'No, I won't pay it, my friend. It's an overcharge.' "'You needn't think,' observed the clerk, "'that just because you're dealing with the railroad you're going to work us.' Genslinger came in, accompanied by Delaney. S. Behrman and the clerk, abruptly dismissing the man with the door-closing machine, put themselves behind the counter and engaged in conversation with these two. Genslinger introduced Delaney. The buster had a string of horses he was shipping southward. No doubt he had come to make arrangements with the railroad in the matter of stock cars. The conference of the four men was amicable in the extreme. Dyke, studying the figures on the back of the envelope, came forward again. Absorbed only in his own distress, he ignored the editor and the cowpuncher. "'Say,' he hazarded, "'how about this? I make out—' "'We've told you what our rates are, Mr. Dyke,' exclaimed the clerk angrily. "'That's all the arrangement we will make. Take it or leave it.' He turned again to Genslinger, giving the ex-engineer his back. Dyke moved away and stood for a moment in the center of the room, staring at the figures on the envelope. "'I don't uh, see—' he muttered, uh, just what I'm going to do. No, I don't see what I'm going to do at all. Ruggles came in, bringing with him two other men in whom Dyke recognized dummy buyers of the Los Muertos and Osterman ranchos. They brushed by him, jostling his elbow, and as he went out of the door, he heard them exchange jovial greetings with Delaney, Genslinger, and S. Behrman. Dyke went down the stairs to the street and proceeded onward aimlessly in the direction of the Yosemite house, fingering the yellow envelope and looking vacantly at the sidewalk. There was a stoop to his massive shoulders. His great arms dangled loosely at his sides, the palms of his hands open. As he went along, a certain feeling of shame touched him. Surely his predicament must be apparent to every passer-by. No doubt everyone recognized the unsuccessful man in the very way he slouched along. The young girls in lawns, muslins, and garden hats returning from the post office, their hands full of letters, must surely see in him the type of the failure, the bankrupt. Then brusquely his tardy rage flamed up. By God, no, it was not his fault. He had made no mistake. His energy, industry, and foresight had been sound. He had been merely the object of a colossal trick, a sordid injustice, a victim of the insatiate greed of the monster, caught and choked by one of those millions of tentacles suddenly reaching up from below, from out the dark beneath his feet, coiling around his throat, throttling him, strangling him, sucking his blood. For a moment he thought of the courts, but instantly laughed at the idea. What court was immune from the power of the monster? Ah, the rage of helplessness, the fury of impotence. No help, no hope. Ruined in a brief instant, he, a veritable giant, built of great sinews, powerful in the full tide of his manhood, having all his health, all his wits. How could he now face his home? 
How could he tell his mother of this catastrophe? And Sidney, the little tad, how could he explain to her this wretchedness? How soften her disappointment? How keep the tears from out her eyes? How keep alive her confidence in him, her faith in his resources? Bitter, fierce, ominous, his wrath loomed up in his heart. His fists gripped tight together, his teeth clenched. Oh, for a moment to have his hand upon the throat of S. Behrman, wringing the breath from him, wrenching out the red life of him, staining the street with the blood sucked from the veins of the people. To the first friend that he met, Dyke told the tale of the tragedy, and to the next, and to the next. The affair went from mouth to mouth, spreading with electrical swiftness, overpassing and running ahead of Dyke himself, so that by the time he reached the lobby of the Yosemite House, he found his story awaiting him. A group formed about him. In his immediate vicinity, business for the instant was suspended. The group swelled. One after another of his friends added themselves to it. Magnus Derrick joined it, and Annixter. Again and again Dyke recounted the matter, beginning with the time when he was discharged from the same corporation's service for refusing to accept an unfair wage. His voice quivered with exasperation. His heavy frame shook with rage, his eyes were injected, bloodshot, his face flamed vermilion, while his deep bass rumbled throughout the running comments of his auditors like the thunderous reverberation of diapason. From all points of view the story was discussed by those who listened to him, now in the heat of excitement, now calmly, judicially. One verdict, however, prevailed. It was voiced by Annixter. "'You're stuck.' You can roar till you're black in the face, but you can't buck against the railroad. There's nothing to be done. You can shoot the ruffian, you can shoot Esperman, clamored one of the group. Yes, sir, by the Lord, you can shoot him. Poor fool, commented Annixter, turning away. Nothing to be done. No, there was nothing to be done. Not one thing. Dyke, at last alone, and driving his team out of the town, turned the business confusedly over in his mind from end to end. Advice, suggestion, even offers of financial aid had been showered upon him from all directions. Friends were not wanting who heatedly presented to his consideration all manner of ingenious plans, wonderful devices. They were worthless. A tentacle held fast. He was stuck. By degrees, as his wagon carried him further out into the country, and open, empty fields, his anger lapsed, and the numbness of bewilderment returned. He could not look one hour ahead into the future, could formulate no plans, even for the next day. He did not know what to do. He was stuck. With the limpness and inertia of a sack of sand, the reins slipping loosely in his dangling fingers, his eyes fixed, staring between the horses' heads, he allowed himself to be carried aimlessly along. He resigned himself. What did he care? What was the use of going on? He was stuck. The team he was driving had once belonged to the Los Muertos stables, and, unguided as the horses were, they took the county road toward Derrick's ranch house. Dyke, all abroad, was unaware of the fact, till, uh, drawn by the smell of water, the horses halted by the trough in front of Carraher's saloon. The ex-engineer dismounted. 
looking about him, realizing where he was. So much the worse. It did not matter. Now that he had come so far, it was as short to go home by this route as to return on his tracks. Slowly he unchecked the horses and stood at their heads, watching them drink. "'I don't see,' he muttered, "'just what I am going to do.' Carraher appeared at the door of his place, his face red, red beard, and flaming cravat standing sharply out from the shadow of the doorway. It called a welcome to Dyke. "'Hello, Captain!' Dyke looked up, nodding his head listlessly. "'Hello, Carraher,' he answered. "'Well,' continued the saloon-keeper, coming down a step, "'what's the news in town?' Dyke told him. Carraher's red face suddenly took on a darker color. The red glint in his eyes shot from under his eyebrows. Furious, he vented a rolling explosion of oaths. "'And now it's your turn,' he vociferated. "'They ain't after only the big wheat growers, the rich men.' By God, they'll even pick the poor man's pocket. Oh, they'll get their bellies full some day. It can't last forever. They'll wake up the wrong kind of man some morning, the man that's got guts in him, that'll hit back when he's kicked, and that will talk to him with a torch in one hand and a stick of dynamite in the other. He raised clenched fists in the air. So help me God, he cried. When I think it's all over, I go crazy, I see red. Oh, if the people only knew their strength! Oh, if I could wake them up! They're not only Shelgrim, but there's others. All the magnates, all the butchers, all the bloodsuckers by the thousands. That day will come, by God, it will! By now the ex-engineer and the barkeeper had retired to the saloon back of the grocery to talk over the details of this new outrage. Dyke, still a little dazed, sat down by one of the tables, preoccupied, saying but little, and Carraher, as a matter of course, set the whiskey bottle at his elbow. It happened that at this same moment Presley, returning to Los Muertos from Bonneville, his pockets full of mail, stopped in at the grocery to buy some black lead for his bicycle. In the saloon, on the other side of the narrow partition, he overheard the conversation between Dyke and Carraher. The door was open. He caught every word distinctly. "'Tell us about it, Dyke,' urged Carraher. For the fiftieth time Dyke told the story. Already it had crystallized into a certain form. He used the same phrases with each repetition, the same sentences, the same words. In his mind it became set. Thus he would tell it to anyone who would listen from now on, week after week, year after year, all the rest of his life. And I based my calculations on a two-cent rate. So soon as they saw I was to make money, they doubled the tariff. All the traffic would bear. And I mortgaged to S. Behrman, ruined me with a turn of his hand, stuck, cinched, and not one thing to be done. As he talked, he drank glass after glass of whiskey. And the honest rage, the open above-board fury of his mind, coagulated, thickened, and sunk to a dull, evil hatred a wicked, oblique malevolence. Carraher, sure now of winning a disciple, replenished his glass. Do you blame us now? he cried. Us others, the Reds. Ah, yes, it's all very well for your middle class to preach moderation. I could do it too. You could do it too if your belly was fed, if your property was safe, if your wife had not been murdered, if your children were not starving. 
Easy enough, then, to preach law-abiding methods, legal redress, and all the such rot. But what about us? he vociferated. Ah, yes, I'm a loud-mouthed rum-seller, ain't I? I'm a wild-eyed striker, ain't I? I'm a bloodthirsty anarchist, ain't I? Well, wait till you've seen your wife brought home to you with the face you used to kiss and smashed in by a horse's hoof, killed by the trust, as it happened to me. Then talk about moderation. And you, Dyke, blacklisted engineer, discharged employee, ruined agriculturist. Wait till you see your little tad and your mother turned out of doors when S. Behrman forecloses. Wait till you see em getting thin and white, and till you hear your little girl ask you why you all don't eat a little more, and that she wants a dinner, and you can't give it to her. Wait till you see, at the same time that your family is dying for lack of bread, a hundred thousand acres of wheat, millions of bushels of food, grabbed and gobbled by the railroad trust, and then talk of moderation. That talk is just what the trust wants to hear. It ain't frightened of that. There's one thing only it does listen to, one thing it is frightened of. The people with dynamite in their hands, six inches of plugged gas pipe, that talks. Dyke did not reply. He filled another pony of whiskey and drank it in two gulps. His frown had lowered to a scowl. His face was a dark red. His head had sunk bull-like between his massive shoulders. Without winking, he gazed long and with troubled eyes at his knotted, muscular hands, lying open on the table before him, idle, their occupation gone. Presley forgot his black lead. He listened to Carraher. Through the open door he caught a glimpse of Dyke's back, broad, muscled, bowed down, the great shoulders stooping. The whole drama of the double freight rate leaped salient and distinct in the eye of his mind. And this was but one instant, an isolated case. Because he was near at hand, he happened to see it. How many others were there, the length and breadth of the state? Constantly this sort of thing must occur. Little industries choked out in their very beginnings, the air full of the death-rattles of little enterprises, expiring unobserved in far-off counties, up in canyons and arroyos of the foothills, forgotten by everyone but the monster who was daunted by the magnitude of no business, however great, who overlooked no opportunity of plunder, however petty, who with one tentacle grabbed a hundred thousand acres of wheat, and with another pilfered a pocketful of growing hops. He went away without a word. His head bent, his hands clutched tightly on the cork grips of the handlebars of his bicycle. His lips were white. In his heart a blind demon of revolt raged tumultuous, shrieking blasphemies. At Los Muertos, Presley overtook Annixter. As he guided his wheel up the driveway to Derrick's ranch house, he saw the master of Quien Sabe and Harran in conversation on the steps of the porch. Magnus stood in the doorway, talking to his wife. Occupied with the press of business and involved in the final conference with the League's lawyers on the eve of the latter's departure for Washington, Annixter had missed the train that was to take him back to Guadalajara and Quien Sabe. Accordingly, he had accepted the governor's invitation to return with him on his buckboard to Los Muertos, and before leaving Bonneville had telephoned to his ranch to have young Vaca bring the buckskin by way of the lower road to meet him at Los Muertos. 
he found her waiting there for him, but before going on delayed a few moments to tell Harran of Dyke's affair. "'I wonder what he will do now,' observed Harran when his first outburst of indignation had subsided. "'Nothing,' declared Annixter. "'He's stuck.' "'That eats up every cent of Dyke's earnings,' Harran went on. "'He has been ten years saving them. "'Oh, I told him to make sure of the railroad "'when he first spoke to me about growing hops.' "'I've just seen him,' said Presley, as he joined the others. "'He was at Carraher's. I only saw his back. "'He was drinking at a table, and his back was toward me. "'But the man looked broken, absolutely crushed. "'It is terrible, terrible.' "'He was at Carraher's, was he?' demanded Annixter. Yes. Drinking, eh? I think so, yes. I saw a bottle. Drinking at Carraher's, exclaimed Annixter rancorously. I can see his finish. There was a silence. It seemed as if nothing more was to be said. They paused, looking thoughtfully on the ground. In silence, grim, bitter, infinitely sad, the three men, as if at that moment actually standing in the barroom of Carraher's roadside saloon, contemplated the slow sinking, the inevitable collapse and submerging of one of their companions, the wreck of a career, the ruin of an individual, an honest man, strong, fearless, upright, struck down by a colossal power, perverted by an evil influence, go reeling to his ruin. I see his finish, repeated Annixter. Exit Dyke, and score another tally for S. Behrman, Shell, Grimm, and Company. He moved away impatiently, loosening the tie rope with which the buckskin was fastened. He swung himself up. God for us all, he declared as he rode away, and the devil take the hindmost. Goodbye. I'm going home. I still have one a little longer. End of Book Two, Chapter Two, Part Four.